thank you, Dr. Roller, for the invitation to deliver this address. I thank my colleagues, Dr. Aiken, Dr. York, and all of the others who I've served alongside in different levels for 16 years almost. On the students and the colleagues that I see who are not merely persons for whom I'm a professor, but their pastor at Sojourn Church Midtown. But especially my wife, Rayanne, and our daughter, daughters, Hannah, Skyler, Kylan, and Katricia, the joy that makes all the rest possible is what they bring to my life. I realize this is the first time I've spoken from a manuscript in about 25 years. And so I will do my best to stay with the manuscript, but I know something, that my preacher's heart will at some point get the best of me, but I will endeavor, due to the formality of this occasion, to stay as close as possible to the manuscript that I've set forth. Well, apologetics is no longer a task that's limited to biblical scholars and theologians. In some sense, it never was, or at least it shouldn't have been. But the scope of apologetics has necessarily expanded. Cultural and social changes have turned apologetics into an unavoidable consequence of living publicly as a Christian. Pursuing a Christian way of life will inevitably require providing a defense of this way of being in the world, not merely for apologists, but for all of us. This is not to suggest somehow that Christianity has only recently become countercultural. Authentic Christian faith has always pressed against the prevailing cultures, even when the people in those cultures have considered themselves to be Christians. The point is that for centuries, faithfulness to a Christian way of life was widely assumed to contribute positively to the social order in Western contexts. Even when the truthfulness of Christianity was questioned, and even when the demands of Christianity were rejected, the positive impact of Christianity was broadly assumed. This assumption has taken a variety of forms over the centuries in the Middle Ages. The social bond was intertwined in the sacred, and indeed it was unimaginable otherwise. At the dawn of modernity, Christian piety was perceived increasingly as a means of promoting civility. And yet, even as the precise nature of the perceived utility of Christian faith changed, Christianity was still assumed to be good for the world. As long as the goodness of Christianity was assumed, it was conceivable for Christian apologetics to restrict the scope of their work to defending beliefs that seemed unbelievable to unbelievers. Thus, many early modern apologists focused on defending the reality of the resurrection or the truth of scripture by building a case for Christianity's most miraculous claims from historical and scientific evidences. With the modern proliferation of worldviews in which theistic first principles were no longer perceived as necessary, apologists recognized the need not only to defend these miracles, but also to contend for metaphysics that allowed for a Christian view of the world. Even then, these apologists only rarely saw a need to defend the goodness of Christianity for the social order. Today, however, it can no longer be assumed that Christian morality is understood to be good for the world. The public practice of Christian ethics is increasingly perceived as incompatible with human dignity and flourishing. This change has been underway for generations, but the precise stakes of this change have become more clear in recent years. In 2019, just to give an example, British medical doctor David Makareth lost his job for declining to use pronouns that conflicted with an individual's birth gender. When he appealed to a tribunal, Makareth lost his case because in the words of the tribunal, the general practitioner's belief in Genesis 127, his lack of belief in transgenderism, and conscientious objection to transgenderism are incompatible with human dignity. 
Such convictions, the tribunal continued, conflict with the fundamental rights of others. Now, the irony of the claim that belief in Genesis 127 stands in opposition to human dignity and fundamental rights is, of course, that the commitment of Western jurisprudence to human dignity and universal rights originates in a long tradition that traces back to Genesis 127. Describing a belief in Genesis 127 as incompatible with human dignity is to attempt to withdraw funds from a bank while simultaneously refusing to admit the bank exists. It is akin, in the words of one author, to insisting that seeds are incompatible with flowers or grain with bread. What is clear in this instance and in others is that the public practice of Christianity is no longer presumed to be good for the social order. To pursue a Christian way of life is based on the assumptions undergirding this decision to stigmatize innocent people and to stand in opposition to human dignity. This change has profound and broad implications for apologetics. Broadly speaking, we might say that the necessary scope of modern apologetics has extended from miracles to metaphysics to morality. And this change is not limited to courtrooms, classrooms, or boardrooms. I recently glimpsed it firsthand when I stepped into student ministry for a few months and encountered a different set of doubts than I had ever faced before. I first worked with middle schoolers and high schoolers nearly three decades ago. When I started working in student ministry, Britney Spears was still a brand new star. George Lucas had not yet inflicted the prequels upon thousands, millions of fans. Those were the 1990s, and during those years in the 1990s, my students typically did not struggle with their faith until the first year or two of college. When they did doubt their faith, the questions they were asking had to do with the truthfulness of scripture and the plausibility of miracles, and their perceived alternative to Christian faith was agnosticism or atheism. These students did not always pursue a Christian way of life, but they and their parents assumed that Christian ethics were good for them and that Christian faith makes the world a better place. In 2019, I returned to student and family ministry for a few months in a temporary role, and I discovered a very different set of challenges and doubts. Doubts about Christian morals now preceded any questions about Christian miracles. One young woman in particular confessed that she found the historical evidence for the resurrection to be compelling, yet she was willing to reject Christianity and the Bible if the Christian faith could not accommodate her conception of herself as bisexual and perhaps transgender. In her mind, for Christians to withhold an affirmation of her self-conception was to disregard her dignity and to devalue her psychological well-being. According to her analytic attitude, to draw the term from Philip Reif, evidence for the Christian faith was irrelevant unless the Christian faith could be conformed to her perception of what is good. This is a dilemma that I never envisioned in the 1990s. An acceptance for the evidence for the central miracle of the Christian faith coupled with a simultaneous rejection of this same faith on the basis of its perceived immorality. Her simultaneous reception of the rational argument and rejection of the moral requirements of Christianity suggested that her objections to the faith were emotivist and pre-rational in nature. For her and many others like her, moral doubts about Christianity have taken precedence over challenges related to miracles and metaphysics. 
Now, as long as apologetics remained in the realm of miracles and metaphysics, it might have been conceivable, though perhaps not desirable, for apologetics to remain the domain of trained experts who argue for rationality and provide evidences based on an area of expertise. However, when it becomes necessary to contend for the social good of publicly practicing Christian faith, no Christian can be exempted from defending the way of life that they're pursuing. Brothers and sisters, we are all apologists now. The question is not whether we will do apologetics. It is whether or not we will do apologetics well. When the very morality of Christianity is in question, we and every one of our students, regardless of their vocation, will be called upon to defend why they are pursuing their calling in a manner that is marked by their faith. Whether we're training students to launch businesses or teach the Bible, to counsel in the church or oversee corporate communications, to work in public education or write a commentary, to run for political office or lead a student ministry, apologetics must have a place in what we teach. Furthermore, the primary mode of this apologetic must move beyond merely appealing to evidence for the reality of miracles and the reliability of scripture. Evidences from science and history have their place, to be sure, but they are not the place where the challenges begin. Neither will it be sufficient for our apologetics only to point out the flawed presuppositions of secular worldviews and the superior epistemology that begins with the triune God. This approach also has a place. And yet, when doubts and suspicions are pre-rational, effective defenses of Christianity are more likely to begin with narratives and ethics repeated in community. But where? Where can contemporary Christians locate an approach to apologetics that is fitted for a context in which the social good of Christianity is in doubt? Well, the good news is, it is helpful at this point to recall, we've been here before. This is not the first time that Christians have faced the charge that their faith is immoral. In the rise and triumph of the modern self, Carl Truman rightly recognizes the second century AD as one possible precedent for this present era in which the very goodness of Christianity for the social order must be defended. In the second century, the church was a marginal sect within a dominant pluralistic society under the suspicion not because her central dogmas were supernatural, but rather because she appeared subversive in claiming Jesus as king and was viewed as immoral in her talk of eating and drinking human flesh and blood and expressing incestuous sounding love between brothers and sisters. Pursuing a Christian way of life required second century Christians to provide a defense of their very way of being in the world. Nevertheless, Christianity flourished by existing as a close-knit, doctrinally bound community that required her members to act consistently with their faith and to be good citizens of the earthly city as far as good citizenship was compatible with their faithfulness to Christ. Truman doesn't detail precisely how the habits of the second century church might shape cultural engagement and apologetics today. So that's what I'd like to do in the remainder of this address. My goal is to consider what such an apologetic might look like in practice, recognizing particularly the ways that what we see in the second century might inform what we do in our churches and in our classrooms in the 21st century. The writings of second century apologists will provide the framework for my discussion with a particular focus on a work that I've spent much of the past year studying. 
the apology of the second century Christian philosopher Aristides of Athens. Now, the original apology of Aristides seems to have been written in the early or mid second century. Little is known about Aristides himself beyond what Eusebius of Caesarea preserves, that the author was a believer earnestly devoted to our religion who addressed an apology to the emperor Hadrian. This placement of the apology in Hadrian's reign may represent a misunderstanding of the text that was accessible to Eusebius, but Eusebius is undoubtedly correct that the text belongs to the second century. Jerome adds the further detail that Aristides was a most eloquent Athenian philosopher who retained his philosopher's garb even after he became a follower of Jesus. Now this earnestly devoted Athenian philosopher begins his apology by appealing to the beauty of the created order. According to Aristides, the beauty and the orderly motion of the cosmos require a deity who is immortal, perfect, incomprehensible, and self-existent. He stands in need of nothing, Aristides declares, but all things stand in need of him. After this declaration of the necessary nature of the divine, Aristides turns himself to concerns that, that drive his defense of Christianity. And here are the questions he is asking implicitly. Which of the four types of people in the world, barbarians, Greeks, Jews, or Christians, is devoted to a deity that meets these necessary qualifications? And what way of life does each type of devotion produce? Hashtag spoiler alert, Christianity wins in the end. From the perspective of Aristides, because human beings imitate what they venerate, defective devotion inevitably produces defective ethics. It is at this point that the apology of Aristides becomes particularly helpful when it comes to doing apologetics in an era where we are all apologists. Now there are three key points that he makes. I'll articulate those for you now so that you can follow along. And they are simply, number one, that it is possible to do civic good without bowing to the civic gods. Secondly, Christianity provides a coherence between what is professed and what is practiced that is not present in any other ultimate commitment. And lastly, part of the purpose of apologetics is to form a community that publicly practices truth. First, Christians practiced radical civic good without bowing to the civic gods. One of the central arguments that Aristides makes is that it is possible to practice radical civic good without participating in the veneration of civic gods. Remember, for the Romans in this era, religion was not primarily a matter of beliefs or morals. Religion referred to the binding ties of duty to the gods, the state, the family, expressed in the virtue of pietas. It was therefore the cement of society and the foundation of justice. Civic devotion was a matter of divination, supplication, and sacrifice with the pragmatic goal of securing divine favor and avoiding divine wrath. According to Polybius, writing three centuries earlier, these patterns of recognizing and reverencing the venerable gods were what held the Roman state together. To reject such reverence was to risk provoking the disfavor of the gods in such a way that the social order itself might be torn apart. And so because Christians refused to participate in these religious rites, the church was seen as a threat to the cohesion and the stability of the social order. It is for this reason that Aristides and other second century apologists go to such lengths to make their case that Christians pose no threat to the social order. 
Christians accomplish civic good without venerating the civic gods. In fact, according to Aristides, Christians do more to strengthen the social order than barbarians, Greeks, or Jews. According to Aristides, the cosmos itself remains in place due to the prayers of the church. To me, there is no doubt, he writes, that the earth itself abides through the supplication of Christians. And one aspect of the good that Christians do is asking God for his mercy on the world, but the church's contribution to civic good does not end for Aristides with the supplications they direct toward the Christian God. It includes the lives that Christians live together and the care that they directed toward their neighbors. Aristides begins his summary of this way of life with clauses that echo the Jewish Torah. Christians do not adulterate or fornicate. They do not covet what is not theirs. They honor their father and mother. They love their neighbors. They judge with justice and so on. Now, despite the Jewish origins of these declarations, many of these values would actually have been at the very least recognizable to second century Romans. Some of these ethics would even have caused philosophically minded Romans to nod their heads in agreement. Yet Aristides does not stop with the summation of recognizable ethics. He moves quickly to actions that are so radically generous that they would have been ridiculed as absurd among most of his neighbors. Christians, according to Aristides, rescue orphans from those who abuse them. They give without grudging to the one who has nothing. Though some philosophers did, did criticize the practice of abandoning unwanted infants, rescuing the fatherless would have seemed ludicrous to many in a context where children unacknowledged by a father were widely perceived as disposable. Then Aristides continues. Whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one according to his ability pays attention and carefully sees to his burial. If any one of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name Christ, all of them provide his needs and if it is possible for him to be delivered, they deliver him. These patterns of giving to the impoverished and caring for the imprisoned are precisely the habits that Lucian of Samosata mocks as preposterous in his second century summary of the events leading up to the death of the cynic philosopher Peregrinus. This philosopher had falsely played the part of a Christian for a time and he ended up in prison. And Lucian's account of the event ridicules the compassion that Christians showed to Peregrinus. And this satirical rhetoric reveals the degree to which the generosity of the Christian way of life went far beyond anything that cultured Romans would have expected a few years later. Celsus similarly criticized the ways that the church brought together people from every background and social class. Persons outside the Christian faith in the second century questioned how Christians could do anything other than civic harm since they abstained from the civic liturgies. The response of Aristides and other second century apologists was that despite their refusal to participate in the cultus deorum, Christians constituted a voluntary association forming a habitus whose virtues contributed to the social good without participation in the civic religion. Christians contributed good to the social order, not only through prayers to their God, but also through their care for the disadvantaged. This good was greater than any good enacted by those who practiced the rights of the venerable gods. The questions posed by those outside the faith in the second century were certainly not identical to the challenges of the 21st century, and I do not pretend that they were. 
Today, however, the challenges have to do with whether a Christian can possibly contribute anything other than civic harm if he or she does not wear a pride patch on a uniform or use someone's preferred pronoun or affirm a young woman's conception of herself as bisexual. Yet perhaps, perhaps, there is more similarity than one thinks at first. In some sense, these contemporary cultural demands constitute a civic liturgy. They are in some sense religious in nature. It includes vestments, things you ought to wear or ought not to wear. It includes rituals, it includes blessings, confessions, we might say, coupled with widespread incredulity that anyone who refuses to participate in these cultural rituals could possibly contribute to the cultural common good. In such a context, all of us are apologists now because the conflict is between two contradictory sets of religious commitments. How then can Christians today demonstrate their contribution to the common good while refusing to conform to these civic liturgies? One possible response, grounded in the apology of Aristides, is for Christians to be characterized by such generosity toward the disadvantaged and marginalized that these habits of life seem absurd to the world. What if the church's participation in care for the impoverished our love for prisoners, our welcome of children in the foster care system was so widespread that an awareness of these habits was at least as widely known as our stand against progressive sexual agendas. What if these habits caused contemporary equivalents of Lucian of Samosata to develop comedy routines that mocked not merely our supposedly out-of-date morals but also our inexplicable generosity? What if the church's pursuit of communities that are richly multi-ethnic, multi-socioeconomic, and multi-generational caused the 21st century counterparts of Celsus to turn up their, nose, no, their noses at the strangeness of Christian community? And as the faculty that forms the next generation of Christian leaders, what might we add to our lectures and readings and course activities to move, children, to move students toward these realities? Aristides was not describing civic good that the world would recognize as good. He was describing something greater and better, a goodness so rich, so radical, that it could not be fitted into the world's categories, and so should we. A second point that Aristides makes is that Christianity represents a coherent commitment that requires consistency between profession and practice. Now this stood in stark contrast to the competing commitments that characterized his cultural context. And his point is deeply relevant for apologetics today. It was, in the second century, generally agreed that even if rationality led to skepticism about the nature of the traditional gods, the ancient customs regarding the worship of these gods should still be maintained. In other words, profession and practice were separable. Participation in the rituals of the gods did not require belief in the stories repeated about the gods. Christianity, unlike Roman religion, required consistency between the beliefs professed and the habits practiced. Belief in a singular deity who has no other god as his companion compelled Christians neither to reverence idols made in a human image nor to consume food consecrated to these idols, according to Aristides. The coherence of Christian profession and practice provided evidence for its superiority. This argument for the truthfulness of Christianity may be found in other early apologists as well, and it persisted for some time. 
More than two centuries after Aristides, one of the evidences for the truth of Christianity that Augustine of Hippo presented to Romanianus was the consistency between Christians' beliefs and practices. In fact, one of the things that Augustine says in De Vera Religione, he says, if Plato showed up and saw what we're doing as Christians, he would say, this is what I was looking for the whole time. Now, I don't know that that's true or not, but that's certainly what Augustine had to say at this point about the consistency between beliefs and practices. The Greek philosophers had, according to Augustine, participated in pagan worship, yet these same philosophers taught in their schools that these gods were not real. But the consistency of the Christian life was what the philosophers sought but never achieved, according to Augustine. Now, Aristides articulated not only this external coherence between profession and practice that set Christianity in contrast to the Roman religions, he also articulated an internal coherence of Christianity. According to Aristides, barbarians, Greeks, and Jews all live within contradictory narratives that only the Christian narrative is able to reconcile. The barbarians claimed, for example, that the elements of the cosmos were divine, but they protected, manipulated, and sometimes even destroyed these same elements, revealing that these elements could not be divine after all. The Greeks made righteous laws, according to Aristides, yet venerated and imitated unrighteous gods whose actions contradicted these very same righteous laws. The Jews, Aristides says, received a righteous law from God, but they did not keep it and chose to worship the angels through whom the law was given instead of the God who gave it. As he engages each of these alternative commitments, Aristides follows the same pattern. He re-narrates the story of each genus of people, barbarians, Greeks, and Jews, and shows the contradictions within their constitutive narratives. Then after showing the contradictions in each of these alternative commitments, Aristides retells the constitutive narrative and present practices of Christianity. And when he does, he reveals that in Christian faith, there is no contradiction. There is instead coherence and consistency between the truths professed, the liturgies practiced, and the lifestyle required. Because a sovereign and singular God is both creator and redeemer, any apparent inconsistency in the faith originates either due to a misunderstanding of what God has communicated or because of rebellion against what God has commanded. In a time when apologetics is the task of every Christian, this coherence between beliefs and practices becomes a crucial argument for the Christian way of life. For one thing, Christianity's call for consistency between our profession and our practice provides an explanation grounded in the venerable witness of the church throughout the generations for why a Christian should not verbally affirm that which he or she knows to be false regarding an individual's gender. This call for consistency also stands as a reminder of the importance of the local church in the life of the apologist. Since church discipline is a divinely ordained means for maintaining consistency between Christian profession and practice. But perhaps most importantly for the sake of apologetics today, the internal coherence of Christian faith reminds believers that any commitment which contradicts Christian faith will also in the end contradict itself. Every human commitment that includes some fragment of truth, goodness, or beauty. These crumbs of truth, goodness, beauty, no matter how fragmentary they may be, will cohere with Christianity in some small way, but they will do more than cohere with some aspect of Christian faith. They will also introduce internal contradictions in any commitment that stands against Christian faith. 
In the Apology of Aristides, even the barbarians recognize the beauty of the cosmos. It is not their recognition of this beauty that introduces the contradictions in their commitment. It is their divinization of it. The contradictions of the 21st century are not the same as the ones Aristides faced. But the responsibility of apologetics to point out these contradictions is perhaps more crucial than ever. Today, the inconsistencies may be found in other places, for example, in the contradiction between the affirmation of human equality and dignity on the one hand and a rejection of humanity's formation in the image of God on the other hand. What this should shape within the Christian is a humble confidence. Confidence because Christian faith does indeed provide a coherent and comprehensive account of the way the world is, and yet humble because God alone comprehends this account wholly and completely. A Christian marked by this humble confidence can simultaneously recognize the world's narratives as false and yet celebrate every strand of truth, beauty, and goodness that appears in these false narratives. The Christian can do this because each of these strands stretches back to transcendental reality and thus reveals a contradiction in the world's narratives that Christian faith and Christian faith alone is able to resolve. The strategy that Aristides follows is to re-narrate the constitutive story of each alternative commitment in his context, showing the contradictions in each one. Then he recounts the beautiful coherence and the explanatory strength of the Christian meta-narrative. What if this strategy became more predominant in our classrooms as a way to engage the commitments that stand against Christian faith? Every developmental theory, every secular practice of leadership, every approach to marketing, every philosophical system, each one has a story which draws from a well of common grace, but which is at the same time rightly critiqued as defective by the Christian meta-narrative. What this requires practically is to practice retelling the constitutive narratives of these defective commitments in a manner that recognizes both the transcendental realities and their contradictions within these systems. When critiquing these claims, we re-narrate their own narratives in a manner that reveals their brokenness and their beauty, showing how they have failed even to measure up to their own best ideals. Which is, as a side note, at least in part, what Augustine did with the history of Rome in the first 10 books of the City of God. And then much like Augustine did in books 11 through 22 of the City of God, we highlight how the glimmers of truth and beauty and goodness that mark these claims are known in their fullness only in the coherence of the Christian community and the Christian meta-narrative. As the dominant cultural narratives in our own day turn from a neutral perspective on Christianity to a negative view, the glimmers of common grace within the culture's stories may grow dimmer and more distorted, but they are never completely absent. And every glimmer of light within them, no matter how faint, is an evidence that ultimately unveils their own contradictions. And this brings us to the final point, that one purpose of apologetics is to form a community that publicly practices truth. According to the apologists of the second century, it is possible to practice radical civic good without bowing to the civic gods. And the coherence of Christianity testifies to its truth by revealing the contradictions that exist in every competing meta-narrative. Narrative, rather. After hearing my considerations regarding how these truths might be contextualized in the 21st century, some of you may have found yourselves wondering, will these tactics from the second century work? 
Will they actually persuade the world that Christians are in fact good for the social order? Might they at least provoke the broader culture to embrace our presence in the public square? My answer is no, they won't. I never meant them to do so. Encouragement clearly is not my spiritual gift. I have no confidence that these arguments will persuade any contemporary secular progressivist that Christian professions and practices are good for the world. As far as anyone can tell, the apologies of Aristides and Justin and Athenagoras did not change imperial perceptions of Christianity. In the second century, the worst persecutions were, after all, yet to come. Why then have I provided you with these ancient examples? And why have I dared to declare that we are all apologists now? It is not because I expect these practices to convince any secularist of the social good of Christianity. It is because God works through practices such as these to form us into the type of community that will persist past the rise and fall of every power that resists God's truth. What is likely to take shape through these particular practices is not the persuasion of the world, but the formation of a people, a people who persist in publicly practicing and proclaiming their faith. The very literary form of apologies, such as this one from Aristides, seems to have been meant to call the Christian community to persist in living its commitments publicly. At least three different second century apologists, Aristides, Justin, and Athenagoras, wrote their apologies as appeals to emperors of Rome, and yet it seems probable none of these apologies ever reached an emperor, and it is quite possible the authors never intended them to do so. Why then? Did these apologists address their apologies in this way? Well, there's more than one possible response to this question, but I will propose the answer I find most compelling. The inclusion of the emperor's name moved these documents into the public sphere. The purpose of these apologies was the formation of Christians. However, addressing the apology to the emperor imbued the church's catechesis with public accountability, even if the document never reached an emperor. By presenting these declarations of Christian faith in a way that extended beyond the church into the public sphere, the apologists helped to form communities that publicly practiced the truth. Still today, public declarations of our beliefs and practices may not persuade the world. In fact, they probably won't. But such declarations remain important nonetheless because they make us publicly accountable to live the truths we've declared. I have the privilege of teaching in two distinct fields here in this place, apologetics and family ministry. And it is at this point of catechizing God's people to persist in the public practice and defense of the faith that these two fields come together. Seen in this way, the apologetical catechesis of the church and the parental catechesis of children represent two facets of the same calling, sometimes with similar challenges. So the public practice of Christianity is no longer assumed to be good for the world. The points at which faith must be defended have expanded from miracles and metaphysics to the very morality of living publicly as a Christian. No one among us or among our students will be able to avoid defending our way of being in the world. And so, brothers and sisters, we are all apologists now. Even if our defenses do not persuade the world that Christianity is good for the social order, they form a community that persists in holiness and love and proclamation of the gospel. 
And no matter how vast the gap may grow between us and the prevalent culture, the gospel remains the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And this brings me back to the young woman I mentioned earlier who preferred her own bisexual self-conception over evidence for the resurrection that she herself admitted was compelling. During the pandemic, I lost track of this teenager, but throughout 2019, her engagement with the church followed a predictable pattern. She would attend student ministry for a while before declaring she would never return due to her disagreement with the moral implications of the gospel. And yet a few weeks later, she'd be back again. I never asked why, but I think I know why. It was because the people of God loved her and cared for her in a way that no one in our home or in her school did, despite her unwillingness to embrace the gospel. As far as I know, she never was persuaded that Christianity is good for the world, but she discovered Christians could be good to her. And someday, somewhere, I pray that God will work through that knowledge to clear her moral confusion as he draws her to himself. In the meantime, we persist in defending the goodness and truth of the Christian faith, forming God's people to proclaim God's truth, knowing that God is still work through, working through the gospel, even in a world where, brothers and sisters, we are all apologists now. Thank you.